Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 2. You can find it on page 528 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Well, what verses, Chet? Well, let me tell you, all of them. That's right. I am going to preach through an entire chapter of the Bible. This is a feat that I have not attempted since long ago in the days of Micah, or the days I preached through Micah, rather, I should say, uh, where in that time, I actually preached through almost two entire chapters, though in, in reality, though, it was only like four more verses than we're going to deal with this morning. But, you know, nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I know that that surprises you, shocks you, maybe scares you a little bit, uh, let's be honest, but, but we want to look at chapter two all as one unit because this is one long run-on sentence. This is one entire message, one entire unit, so we want to look at it together. And so as you're turning there to Proverbs chapter 2, I, I, wanna, I want us to think about something. Why do you labor? I mean, why do you work hard? Why, what, what compels you to get up early in the morning, to spend hours and hours and hours, to burn the midnight oil for one project after the next, after the next, after the next, for decades of your life. Many of us like sports. Well, what, what compels athletes to train vigorously day in, day out, to condition their bodies to optimal performance on the field? Why do we spend so many of our lives or so many years of our lives in school? We bury our noses in books so that we can pass tests or classes over material that we will just as quickly forget. Why do people starve themselves or undergo painful surgeries to enhance their bodies for that elusive, fleeting, and temporary goal of beauty? I mean, why do we sacrifice why do we spend ourselves? Why do we sweat and suffer and serve for anything? What leads us to do that? Well, it's because we believe that there's reward in it, right? There's something to be gained, something to be had that is worth the effort. We consider it to be worth our time. We consider that to be worth our energy, worth our sweat, worth our blood, worth our pain. If only we might attain that which we labor for. I mean, the only reason we toil and sacrifice for anything is because we believe that that which we would gain is greater than that which we would spend to get it, right? And when we don't believe that that is true, what do we do? We don't spend ourselves on it. Because we recognize it's not of great value. But when we we recognize the value of something, we spend ourselves to attain it. We say, this is worth my time. This is worth my energy. This is worth my money. This is worth my life. Anything worth having is worth working for. And that which we long and labor for is the greatest indication of what we treasure the most. And so it's good for us just to take a pause right here, just kind of think to ourselves, you know, if I look at my life's pursuits, what does that indicate that I treasure the most, that I pursue the most? You know, on every page of Scripture, we are told 
that the greatest gain that we could ever attain to in this life is that which we would receive freely through Christ Jesus our Lord. That there is no higher aspiration. There is no better reward. There is nothing of greater value than knowing Christ and being known by Christ. That through him, we have eternal salvation. Through him, we can be changed. Through him, we are delivered from every danger of sin and temptation. And through him, we are forever restored as beloved sons and daughters to live with our heavenly father forever. And friends, that is far, far better. There is nothing of greater value than knowing and loving and living for him. He is of incomparable worth. And that which is of supreme value is worth being pursued. In fact, our pursuit of that which is most precious is the means by which we display his infinite value. Now our passage this morning is going to speak of the reward that we will receive, not just in eternity, but here in this life, here and now and every day until all eternity, throughout all eternity, if we pursue wisdom in Christ. It gives us a condition, this pursuit of wisdom, this pursuit of what the the revealed truth that God has given us so that we can have skill in godly living. And it gives us the reward, tells us what it is, that there will be inward change and outward protection. And friends, let's be honest, when we understand the reality of and the depth of our sin and who we are apart from Christ, the idea of just inward transformation and outward protection, that is so sweet. That's so precious. I long for that. I want that. I want to pursue that with all my heart, with all my soul. And so I'm drawn then to the only one in which it can be found. And so the central truth that we're going to see from Proverbs chapter 2 that that I have to say right up front doesn't adequately describe the value of what we are beholding here. It doesn't encapsulate all that this passage is saying to us, but sometimes I, I have to trust in the fact that the most precious truths are the simple ones, is that pursuing the gift of wisdom produces inward change and outward protection. Pursuing the gift of wisdom produces inward change and outward transformation. Again, that will not encapsulate what we are about to see and what we've been given in the word, but I pray that it is memorable and that that simple truth would manifest itself in our hearts and minds this morning. And so with that in mind, please read along with me Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. It says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsake the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good. And keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land. And those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land. And the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Friends, this passage is telling us that change is possible. That by pursuing the gift of wisdom, we can and we will be changed from the inside out. And we will be kept safe with God despite all the temptations to sin that we face in this world. And so I want us to look at each of these two rewards that we find in pursuing wisdom. The inward change that we see there in verses 1 through 11. And then the outward protection that we see in verses 1 through 12. So first, the inward change. And we have to stop here. We've we've got to take an honest assessment. Do you believe that change is possible? Do you honestly believe that your life can be transformed? Do you believe that you do not have to continue in the same patterns? That life is not futile or in vain? That by God's grace, you are not hopeless and helpless and without God in the world? That you can actually pursue him and find him and you will be forever changed? Friends, I ask that question because it's really easy to affirm that. As Christians, it's really easy to read the truths of scripture and say, yeah, that's true because God says so. But functionally, When we're faced with temptations, when we're faced with the challenges of sin, we often live as functional fatalists, as if sin is inevitable, as if it's unavoidable. This is just who I am. This is just my personality. This is genetic. This is uh, is the product of my upbringing. This is my curse, and there's nothing that I can do about it. I can't not sin. I have to sin. Have you ever felt that way in the midst of temptation, in the midst of struggle? Have you felt that way? I I can't help it. I have to give myself over to it. Anybody? I'm hoping I'm getting some head shakes, right? Because here's the reality. That's true. That in and of ourselves, apart from the grace of God in our lives, that's every single one of us. That's who we are. We do not have that ability or, or that power not to fall into temptation. But here's the thing. Praise God Because he has graciously given us all that is necessary for life and godliness. That we can actually follow him in faithful obedience. Because God gives us the power to be able to do that. And we've already seen this in Proverbs chapter 1. God gave us this fatherly wisdom. 
It's like of a father speaking to a son. Because God is our heavenly father. Yes, he is our creator. He is our sustainer. And as our maker and as our Lord, he has absolute right over us to tell us exactly what we, how we ought to live and what we ought to do. But we forget the fact that God is also our father who loves us and cares for us. And he gives us wisdom so that we might know and love him. Not because he needs us, because this is for our joy. This is for our glory. This is for our good. He is the one who makes wisdom beautiful so that we would be attracted to it and more attracted to it than we would be enticed by sin. And he gives us this attractive wisdom so that as we receive his wisdom, we might turn away from the path of folly that leads to death to find life and hope and that which is most beautiful, that which is most precious, that which can only be found in him. But he gives it to us. He puts it out there. He doesn't just implant it in us. You see, we're complacent people. We like the idea of things coming easy, things coming quick. I just put it in the microwave. I push the button, pop, out it comes, right? And, and we, we want our life in Christ to be that way. We want to be complacent. We want it to be easygoing. We want it to be smooth and simple and comfortable, that God would just zap us with wisdom, that he would just flip a switch and suddenly we would love him more than anything else and just kind of live in light of that. But friends, that which is most precious is worthy of being pursued. And we saw last time in chapter 1, verse 32, that the complacency of fools destroys them. The great worth of God and the immeasurable value of his wisdom is not displayed in our complacency, in our comfort, in our contentment with the status quo. It will not be seen, it will not be cherished if it just happens upon us automatically or we happen to drift into it or fall into it. That just will not happen. The supreme value of God is displayed in our earnest desire of him. And as his beloved children who have been redeemed by his grace, who have been loved far beyond what we could ever comprehend. It is our joy to display the immeasurable worth of God with our lives. And as we do that, verses 1 through 11 promise us that as you seek God, you will find him and you will be changed. Whereas another pastor put it, if you get real with God, God will get real with you and it will change you. But there's a condition in our passage. You must pursue him. Look again at verses 1 through 4. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Three times that word if appears. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4. Because that's a condition. Saying, do you want to know the glory of God in Christ? Do you want to love him and worship him with your whole heart? Do you want to find him as more precious than all the treasures of the world? Then you must pursue him. As we get this, we understand this, even though we, we have a hard time accepting it and hard time walking in it. Take, for example, this, right? No one stands amazed at hearing the word mountain. 
that send chills up your spine? Did you stand in awe when I said that word mountain? What if you've never seen a picture of a mountain? What if you've never heard stories of a mountain? What if you've never stood upon a mountain? That, mean, that word means nothing. It might as well say a or the and. Mountain has no significance. The reason why that word means something to us is when we experience it. When at last we reach the summit short of breath and we gaze out over the horizon. That's when it has value. There's no joy in reading the words ocean, sunset. The pleasure is found when you dig your feet into the sand. And as you just stand in awe of all the vast colors across the horizon and you feel the spray of the ocean mist upon your face as the waves crash to the shore. Our pleasure in God doesn't just happen because we hear words or because we read them. But out of a deep longing, we seek to know them intimately. It is through the heartfelt pursuit that gladness in God is found. This passage is not saying to us, if you perform your religious duties, your heart will change and you will be protected. That's hearing the word mountain or reading the word ocean, words ocean sunset. This passage is not saying, hey, all you got to do is just read your Bible and close your eyes and ask God for things. If you're just a good moral person and you go to church and you spend time with God's people and you just kind of have a, a good moral disposition, then you'll be saved. You'll be changed. Now, those are good things, and those are means, those are helps to us. Those are really, they, they, they are essential for life if we're going to pursue life in Christ, but those are not the ends. That's legalism. You cannot save yourself through what you do. It's only by God's grace in Christ that you can be saved. He must do a work in our hearts, but friends, God's grace in your life is effective. It is effectual. It changes us. It gives us new hearts, new life, new longing. We want to live differently. We love things that we never loved before. And as we fan those longings into flame, we find ourselves desiring them more and more and more. And God grants fulfillment of those desires more and more and more. So we grow in our delight and our appreciation and our joy and our gladness in God. But again, we pursue it. Reading the word or listening to a sermon is not enough. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, man. I'm glad that you're here. We need to hear sermons. We need to read the word. We need to sit under it. But just because you're here, it doesn't mean that you get a gold star from God. This passage is telling us that we must be receptive to God's wisdom. Look again. It says, my son, if you receive my words... My son, if you take them up, if you want them for yourself, it says if you treasure up my commandments with you, if you store them up, if you hide them in your hearts, if you commit them to memory. Friends, do you love the word of God? Do you treasure it? Do you hide it in your heart? Do you commit it to memory so that you might meditate on it day and night? 
He says, if you make your ear attentive to wisdom, is it your desire? Do you long to hear God's word? I mean, this is not just sitting in a seat half listening to me rattle off while you try to do your best to avoid falling asleep. This is not just kind of scrambling to get here, just kind of mind everywhere, and I'm distracted by a million other things, but I'm trying to get whatever I can. This is not having a lackadaisical or apathetic attitude about the word of God. This is a heart attitude that says, God, I want your word. I want to hear from it. I want to know you. This is an eager listening. It's a thirsting for wisdom. It's an active listening. I mean, how many of us came here today with that desire? God, I want to hear your word proclaimed. How many of us prepared our hearts for that? We got a good night's sleep. We woke up early. We prayed. We mulled over the word of God. We did our best to prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Because it says, if you incline your heart to understanding. God, my desire is to know you. I want to know your ways. I want to receive your wisdom so that I might follow you. That's the kind of longing. That's the kind of desire that he's speaking of. A desire that is truly receptive to God's wisdom. The the heart that says, I want to hear. I want to know. I want to respond. I want to apply. Those with receptive hearts cry out to God in prayer for understanding. Look there at verse 3. It says, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. It's kind of interesting to note that last time when we were in chapter 1, verses 20 through 33, we saw wisdom. We saw the alma mater statue, right? Remember that, right? We saw wisdom personified as a beautiful woman who is standing there in the busiest intersections of life and she's calling out to us to hear her voice, to receive her wisdom, to embrace what she is offering to us. She's calling out to us, but here in this passage, we see that those who actually heed her warning and respond to the choice that she offers, they call back. They respond to God. They cry out to God in prayer for understanding. And guys, we must do this. Because of our sin, we are mentally and morally blind. And we can read the word of God and we can understand the words on the page and just kind of its meaning on a level the way that we would understand if we were to read Hamlet. But... Apart from God doing a work in our hearts, we don't and we won't long for it. In fact, our natural proclivity is to hate God's wisdom, to reject it, to scorn it. We don't see the beauty and the glory of Christ in his word. And so we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might come to know the hope and the riches and the power of God's word in and for us. We have to pray, Lord, open your word to me and open me to your word. And this is why we must call out to God for wisdom, for insight, for understanding. Like the prayer that we see in Psalm 119, verse 18, we must plead with God, God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. 
but to a genuine receptivity to God's wisdom in a prayer for understanding. Verse 4 adds, diligent study that views wisdom as a treasure. It says, if you seek it like silver, if you search for it as for hidden treasures, what does it take to mine silver? I mean, what goes into searching for hidden treasures? This is not easy. This is not something you just trip upon. I mean, think about the gold rush of 1849. Sure, one guy happened to find some gold there in the the stream, but what did everyone else do? They packed up and they moved. It was great sacrifice. There was diligent effort. There was hard work. They spent time and resources. And why would anyone seek silver or search for hidden treasures? Because they are valuable. Because those who find them become rich. Their life is made full. I mean, what does this tell us about the value of God's wisdom? What does this tell us about Christ's worth? That it is better than mining for silver. It is better than searching for hidden treasures. Jesus spoke of it this way in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He sacrifices. He gives up all that he has because it is worth it. It's worth it. I don't want you to look at these four verses as some unattainable list that God demands of you if you are to earn his favor, if you are ever going to strive and reach and find God. Don't look at these verses as a set of religious rituals that ought to be observed. Okay, did I receive God's word today? Check. Did I pray? Check. Did I study? Check. That's not his point. These verses are all about desire for God, a deep, heartfelt longing for him. These verses describe a lifelong, continual pursuit of intimacy with God, regardless of how mature or immature you are, regardless of how simple or how wise, regardless of how holy or unholy, because this passage is calling us all to keep listening, keep praying, keep pursuing God. Because as you do, your desires for him, your affections for him will grow. And the more that you pursue him, the more you see him as precious, as worth far more than anything else. And so this father is telling his son, listen, son, pursue him with all your heart, pursue him with all your soul, pursue him with all your mind, pursue him with all your strength, because he is a far greater value and he will not let you down. It is gain to seek him. As you get real with him, he will get real with you. If you long for God and you actively seek him, look at what it says in verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. He's saying you will know God personally. 
you will experience the lifelong joy. That's not a trial-free joy, but a lifelong joy of intimate fellowship with him. I've said before, when we looked at chapter 1, verse 7, this fear of the Lord, it's multifaceted. To fear the Lord is to tremble at his power. It's to stand in awe of his greatness. It's to revere his holiness and his justice and to marvel at his glory. To fear the Lord is to wonder at his vastness, to respect him for his righteousness and his wisdom, to be amazed by his grace, to admire him for his love and to honor him for his mercy. To fear the Lord is to know God and to love God and to worship God for all he truly is. Not for who I want him to be, not for those parts that I find favorable and ignore those parts that I don't, but to worship him for all that he is. To worship the Lord in fear of him is to spend eternity praising his name, praising his glorious grace. It's this worshiping and adoring submission to God. It recognizes who he is, who we truly are in light of him, and what we've been given. Just the immense gift that we have received in God's wisdom, who is Christ, the very embodiment of God's wisdom and instruction. Fear of the Lord delights in the fact that we can now pursue God because he has first pursued us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Fear of the Lord is living in light of the fact that salvation is more than simply a change in status, that you go from condemned to forgiven, but it is a redeemed and reconciled and restored relationship between God and all of those whom God has adopted in his love. This is what we gain from our pursuit. We gain God. And here's the thing. We can rest assured that as we lovingly and actively pursue God, we will find him because it's not based upon your achievements. It's not based upon your abilities, your wisdom, your morality, anything that you do, but on what God himself does. And it's right here in this passage. I mean, look at verses six through eight. Here's how we can trust that our pursuit of God will not be in vain. It says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. This is what God is doing. God is the one who gives us wisdom. He gives us skill for godly living through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, whom Colossians chapter two, verse three says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. We receive God's wisdom through faith in Christ, a faith that is not simply agreed with, but a faith that is known intimately and is lived out daily. We don't simply acquire knowledge and understanding of God by our own keen intellect or by our own hard work, like the way we study through worldly studies, the way you study math. Knowledge and understanding comes where? From the mouth of God. 
He speaks to us. He reveals knowledge and wisdom and understanding through his word. We are able to treasure up God's commands that we saw there in verse 1. We're able to treasure up God's commands because God himself stores up sound wisdom for the upright. Verse 7. It's the same word there. You are able to treasure. You are able to store up because God is the one who is ultimately treasuring and storing up. God is our shield. God is the one guarding our paths and watching over his saints. Whereas 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Get this, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What God is saying to us here is the same thing he says in Proverbs chapter 8, Jeremiah 29, and what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, that you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And this will happen Because I am the one working in you. Whereas Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, if if we are honest with ourselves and God, when we sincerely desire and actively pursue following his straight or upright path towards holiness, God is saying, you will find me because I am working in you. As you get real with God, God will get real with you. As you seek God, God will be found And in verses 9 through 11, we see that you will be changed. It says, then you will understand righteousness, justice, and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. Friends, when God works in us, we are transformed. He gives us new life. He gives us new hearts. And with that new life and with that new heart comes new longings and new affections to follow him. And we start living differently. We're changed. We have new desires. He says, then you will understand righteousness, justice, and equity, every good path. Now, that doesn't mean that when God does this work, you will now be able to recite Webster's Dictionary definitions for the following, righteousness, justice, equity, and every good path. What he's saying there is know that you will grow in righteousness, justice, equity, and every good path. You will become more like Christ. God's wisdom, which we know from the New Testament, is given through faith in Jesus. It comes 
into our hearts. It's not something that remains outside us or something that we can just study and kind of add to the collection of information that we store alongside just the, the conditions of, I don't know, pots and pans, right? But this says that this wisdom comes into our hearts, Where once we, apart from Christ, hated God's wisdom and had no knowledge of him, now we find the knowledge of God pleasant to our souls. We want him. He's a delight to us. We find him altogether lovely. We want to know him more and more. There's a growth in our hunger and our thirst for God. Then, God-given discretion will watch over us. That word discretion, that's that, that's that word prudence again. We don't like her. She's a prude. But friends, she's so essential for our life in God. Prudence gives us wisdom in how to navigate through the course of this life without falling into sin or into error. She provides us with caution. With discretion, she says, slow down and think about it. What does it mean to put God first in your life? How are you going to make decisions about your future, about your jobs, about who you marry, about what you do day in and day out in ways that you can go through and not fall into sin, to say no to sin, but yes to God. That's what prudence does. And we need her. That's God's gift to us. And then there's understanding. Understanding will guard you. Truly grasping God's will and knowing God's ways and knowing even more than that, knowing why God's will and God's ways are the way they are based upon his nature and character and a desire to follow after them, that understanding will guard you. He's saying as you seek God and God works in you, you will be changed. You will not be who you once were. Right pursuits will lead to right thinking and right believing and right living and right loving. You will not be the same. You will become what you behold. And as you behold God, living daily in worshiping and adoring submission to God, you will become more like him. This is how God's grace works in our lives, transforming our hearts and minds. He doesn't just snap his fingers and then suddenly you're something different. He changes our hearts so that we walk in that, so that we pursue him and we grow in this God-given desire for him. And as we nourish our souls in him, we find ourselves longing for more and more and more. And he gives more and more and more. And we become like him. We become what we behold. That is our goal. That is the direction. That is the outcome of the way of wisdom that we are called to pursue. Not to just be okay. Not to just remain complacent with the status quo and say, you know what? I'm better than I once was. I guess I can take it easy now. But to say, no, I want God. I want him. I want him more than anything else. I'm going to do whatever it takes to pursue him. My friends, change is possible. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God will work in you. God is not saying, seek me 
and I will love you more. God is saying, seek me and you will find me for all I'm worth. And so, receive his wisdom. Cry out to him and seek him for all that he is. Life's greatest treasure. Now, it's hard for me not to end the message right there. I mean, that would be appropriate. Like, what more do we need? But this sentence is still running on. We got to finish it up. And so there's another secondary benefit to pursuing wisdom because not only will we be changed inwardly, but second, we will be protected outwardly as well. Again, don't worry. I'm always lopsided in my uh, weight of sermon or weight of point. So this will be lighter, I hope. Uh, Verses 12 through 22 tell us that God does a work to hide his wisdom in our hearts. And when he does that, as he does that, we will be delivered from devious men and deadly women, and we will be kept safe with God in his blessing forever. The reality is God is not going to take you out of the world. You will continue throughout this life to rub shoulders with devious men, with deadly women. But through it all, God will protect you. And so let's focus first on these devious men, keeping safe from them. Look at verses 12 through 15. Wisdom will come into your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Verse 12, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Now, we have to stop here. And we have to challenge a notion, a faulty notion that I think we all fall into. We have this tendency to define words like evil, perverted, darkness, perverseness, crookedness, and devious by their extremes. We try to reduce them to their polar opposites. That here's good over here. And at the complete and polar opposite, there is evil way over there. And what it does is it creates this room in the middle, creates this great gap, this gray area, this neutral area that's kind of not really good, but it's not evil. And we want to live right there. This is what our culture does. This is what we're prone to do. We don't want to admit that any of those things are actually accurate descriptions of us, of our actions, thoughts, words, and attitudes. But when in reality, they are. We want to pretend like we're okay. We want to say, you know what? Hitler, Hitler is evil. I'm not evil. Ted Bundy, that guy was perverted. I'm not perverted, right? Vampires, vampires follow the way of darkness, but me, look at me, I can walk out in the light. Hardened, habitual criminals, they're perverse and crooked, but me, I've never been incarcerated. At least most of you can say that. Terrorists are devious, but I don't make malicious plans against anyone. That's not me. That's not most of us. And that's what our culture wants us to believe. But that's not the way that God sees it. With God, there are two options. There are those thoughts, feelings, words, actions, attitudes, desires, Decisions that are consistent with his nature, his character, his purposes, and his promises. And there are those that 
deviate from it. There are those things that are less than God. So evil is not the polar opposite of good. Evil is a perversion of what is good. It is a twisting. It is a distortion. It is a corruption of what is good. Doesn't matter how far down the scale you say that it is, evil is anything less than God's good and perfect standard. Perverted speech. I don't think drunken sailors here, right? Perverted speech is not cuss words, dirty jokes, or vulgar conversations. It's twisted speech. It's spin. It's yarn. Our words were intended by God to represent reality. But men of perverted speech use words to twist reality, to present a, what is less than true, or to use their speech for upheaval, to turn things away from God's good and perfect and true standard. Right? This is lying. This is saying what is less than true as well. And this happens in the church. This happens among people who profess Christ. We were dealing with this in our Membership Matters class just this weekend, you know. To say that God is love to the exclusion that God is holy and just and righteous and must punish sin because of his good, perfect standard, that is perverted speech. And so whether you are speaking inappropriately about sex or you're swearing or you're speaking what is completely false or even what is less than true, all of that is perverted speech. You know, a better way to identify these devious men is by how they fall short of God's purpose for mankind. Look at verse 13 there. It says, they forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Now, John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that God is light. And we know from Proverbs that the paths of uprightness are God's straight paths that he has placed before us for our good, for our best, for our joy, so that we might live with him. And so these men, they're the ones who forsake all that. They want to live their life without God. They want to live as if this is my world and, and I am God. They want to cut out their own path, any path that they choose to take. That's the way they want to go. They don't care about being righteous or just or truthful or upright or good because they don't, they don't have any desire to reflect the nature and character of God in their lives. They rejoice and they delight in living for themselves and pursuing their own ways. And they want to try to get you to join in with them because, hey, when we have people with us, it justifies ourselves, right? We can excuse away our actions if you're doing the same thing that I'm doing. And friends, apart from receiving and applying this God-given wisdom to our lives, we're going to want to follow them. You need to understand this. You are going to be tempted to follow after them, to do what they do. Because these guys are not the social outcasts. These guys are the ones that run in that crowd that you want to be a part of. Right? Right? We don't need to be delivered from hanging out or being tempted by the Unabomber, but by the guys we want to be like, by the celebrities, by the successful, by the popular, by the rich, by the star, by the one who's always the center of attention. And again, we rub shoulders with these folks every single day. Maybe it's that guy in your office that doesn't seem to have a care in the world, 
You know, he's, he's single. He's involved in all sorts of fun things. He's always traveling. He's, you know, he's with a different girl, seems like, every single night. And, and every single month, he always turns in the best numbers. And our boss loves that guy. He loves him. And I was talking with that guy, and that guy told me that the reason why his numbers are always the highest is because he pads them a little bit. And you should pad them too, because if you pad them too, our boss will be good with you too. Boy, I want that. I want to be in with that guy. I want to be in with my boss. Or maybe, maybe it's that girl in your class, and and you notice it's like all the guys fawn after her. They follow her around. They want to get her stuff. Maybe if I dressed more like her, maybe if I just acted more like her, maybe if I flirted the way that she did, they would like me too. Because this is far more subtle. These are people that you want to be like. We've been given Christ. We've been given God's word so that we might know him and his ways. And in knowing him and loving him and pursuing him, we are delivered from the temptations to be like these men, to be like these women. We see the perverseness in their words and in their behaviors and in their desires. We're not deceived by the facade of worldly prosperity. We see through the futility of what is underneath and the horrible outcome that their path is on. And we will turn away from it and continue to seek God because we know he is of greater worth. But this God-given wisdom treasured in your heart will also protect you from a second temptation, the seduction of deadly women. Now, this could just as easily apply to deadly men. But again, the context says that this is a father speaking to his son. Therefore, he's speaking of the adulteress. Verse 16. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Now, friends, we're going to have ample time to deal with this issue of adultery and sexual immorality. Right? This is a major warning throughout Proverbs. We're going to spend a good amount of time in it in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7. And so I'm choosing to limit my focus on it here, though this is essential for life. Okay? Don't hear this as dismissing this or ignoring this. We're going to deal with it. But I do want to just try to be brief and help us to focus that wisdom in this passage helps us to see her for what she truly is. Now, in verse 16, it says that she's forbidden. This is an illicit woman. This is an unauthorized woman. So don't limit the application of this verse to the adulteress only. This can be applied just as equally to any illicit or prohibited sexual relationship that goes against God's design for marriage and intimacy. He's just giving particular attention to the issue of adultery. Okay, so don't dismiss, don't, don't minimize, don't, don't reduce this down, right? This is speaking of premarital sex, this is speaking of fornication, this is speaking of pornography. He says, beware of her methods, She will use smooth words 
to entice you. She will come in and she will flatter you. She will make you feel good about yourself. She'll say to you, I want you. You're handsome. You make me feel alive again. And this father here in Proverbs, he's real with us. He's saying, listen, this will be appealing. You will be tempted to follow after her. It will be alluring. And so you got to know, you got to be aware of her methods. You have to be on guard. Do not be deceived by her seductive words. Look instead at her true character. She's forsaken the companion of her youth. She has abandoned her husband that she once professed to love. But even worse than that, she forgets the covenant of her God. So who's this woman? This is a church-going woman. She's a professing faith, but she's denying the covenant that she has with Christ with her life. And friends, if she is unfaithful to God and to her husband, then she's going to be unfaithful to you. And so young people, you must realize that if a person that you're interested in marrying is disloyal to God by engaging in sexual immorality, you can't really trust them to be faithful to you in your marriage. You got to deal with that. If she is someone who flaunts, and this is not just she, this is she and he. If they flaunt their body for all to see, either for free or for money, they are being unfaithful to God and displaying what he intended to be a gift to that person's spouse. That's no one's prize, no matter how beautiful she is. Infidelity is not attractive. Is that someone that you want to entrust your soul and your life to? So he says, watch out for her methods. Look at her true character. And in verses 18 and 19, he warns us where she will lead us. She will lead you to death. That's where she's heading if she continues down that path. And the danger for you is that there is no coming back, that you will not regain the paths of life. Now, I have to stop right here and say to you, God loves sexual sinners. He loves you. He absolutely loves you. There is hope for repentance and faith. This passage is speaking to the grave dangers of seduction and how quickly sexual sin can lead us towards hardening our heart against God and just how easy it is for us to close that area of our lives off to God. When friends, let's not forget that sex was God's idea. He's the one that designed it. He designed it for our enjoyment. He designed it for our pleasure, but he designed it in a way and he knows what is best for us. He knows what, how sex can be used to actually bring glory to God and enjoyment to your soul. And so friends, if I just nailed you right there, My encouragement to you is not to hide it. Don't stuff it. Don't ignore it. This is not beyond God's grace to redeem. Respond to him in repentance and faith. And friends, seek help because you are going to need help if you are going to win the battle against sexual temptation. Seek his wisdom. But this is not beyond hope. Verses 1 through 4, I'm sorry, 1 through 8, tell us that. But here's the thing, guys. 
Wisdom is more than avoiding sin. It's more than being protected from devious, deadly sinners. Wisdom also protects us by leading us to the paths of true life. It keeps us safe with God and his blessing forever. So look at verses 20 through 22. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Saying, you will walk in the way of the good. You will keep to the paths of righteous. And what is the outcome of that path? Well, in the Old Testament, that meant dwelling with God in the land that he had given as a promised inheritance to his people, Israel. It is God dwelling with his people to bless them. As they faithfully followed God, he promised that they would remain in his place of blessing. But in light of the New Testament and Christ fulfilling God's Old Testament promises, we now understand that he is speaking of the continual blessing that we receive through our union with Christ. As Jesus said in John 15, verse 7, if you remain in me, if you abide in me, if you dwell in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. I'm going to bless you. We remain in Christ by trusting in his completed work for us. In Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, we have received the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And because God is faithful to keep all of his promises, we know that we can grow in righteousness and uprightness and in integrity and we will walk with him forever. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And the reward of that is far greater than anything else that you could ever gain from this life. Now, If you're here and you realize, man, I have little or no desire for God. You know, I I do that religious thing, but I've seen little change in my life. And honestly, I wonder whether or not that's even possible. And I, I go through life and I just feel like I'm wide open and completely unprotected against any and every temptation to sin. If that's the way you feel, Well, friends, here's how you can respond this morning. You want to go back to the conditions of verses 1 through 4. Listen to what God is telling you. Listen carefully. Listen deeply. Cry out to him that you would truly be open to receiving his wisdom and that you might grow to cherish him above all else. And as you read, as you're seeking after him, as he reveals himself in his word, trust in the promises that he gives us in verses 5 through 22. The pursuing the gift of wisdom produces inward change and outward protection. Seek diligently by his grace to put your foot on that path. And friends, he will be faithful to accomplish all of his purposes in you. He will be faithful to keep every single promise. 